Blog Talk Radio. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never connected to Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called None Other, Discovering the God of the Bible. This detailed look at God's character can strengthen your trust in the Lord and deepen your love for Him. Request your free book by writing to none other at gty at gty.org. The offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2019. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. Now we come to the first chapter of 
Second Thessalonians. This letter is the second letter written to a very, very sound and good church. Two letters to them, no condemnation at all. This was a very healthy church, a very fruitful church, a very loving church, a very God-honoring and obedient church. And so it is a bit unusual that you would find in all the commendations of this church such a terrifying portion of Scripture as occupies part of chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 in this letter. I want to read chapter 1 to you down to verse 12 so that you have the context in mind. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God, for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to those who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing chapter. It starts and ends with very warm commendation, very sweet memories of the reality of the life of this congregation. It is all commendation. The commendation sets for us a divine standard for commending any church, any church. And as in the first letter and the first chapter, so in the second letter and the first chapter, the virtues that are identified by way of commendation are the virtues that God would still commend in any church. They are the marks of a faithful congregation. They're not the typical features of popular culture in the church these days because they have nothing to do with buildings, they have nothing to do with media, they have nothing to do with decor or music or bands or technology or branding or style or crowd size or celebrity or any of those things. The Lord commends this church in both of these letters basically for the same things, and they are virtues, spiritual 
virtues. Those are the only things the Lord cares about when He looks to assess a church. And this assessment is from heaven, through the Holy Spirit, to the pen of Paul, to the church at Thessalonica, and then on to all other churches, including us. This church is strongly commended. And there are four virtues that appear here. just want to refer to them as a start. The first one is true salvation. This is a truly converted church because it says in verse 1 that this is the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and, of, of course, implied in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a church with a genuine union with God and with the Lord Jesus. This is true Christianity. And it results, in verse 2, in the church receiving grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace flows through their union with the Father and their union with the Son. Peace flows through the same union. So they are commended and honored because they are a true church, true salvation. Secondly, they are marked by increasing faith. Obviously, you become a believer through faith, but faith should be increasing. And that's exactly the case with them. Verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged. Increasing faith. Stronger belief. Stronger confidence in the Lord. In fact, the, the Greek term here has huper at the front end of it, and that's the word from which we get hyper. It means something that is excessive. They, they are growing at a rate that is unexpected. Their faith is being enlarged at a more than normal rate. Not only are they known for true salvation and increasing faith, but growing love. Back to verse 3. It says there that the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. This is a glorious revelation concerning this beloved church. Their love, agape, the strongest, highest, noblest love of the will, characterizes this church, and it is continually growing greater. Their faith is growing, and their love is growing. The third thing, and we're not surprised to find it out, is they also are marked by persevering hope. Verse 4, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. In other words, this is a church that accepted the difficulties, the challenges of persecution and affliction and kept their hope alive. And he says in verse 5, this persecution and affliction is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. It's as if he says all that you're going through is preparing you for the kingdom. You are now in the kingdom, but there's a greater kingdom yet to come. So here is a church identified as in God, in Christ, genuinely converted. They have ever-increasing faith, growing love, and persevering hope. And even in their affliction, and verse 5 is a very important verse, they see a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. What is plain indication in the NAS means? It's a Greek 
Greek word endegma, it means proof or evidence. So your suffering and your affliction is evidence of God's righteous judgment. Now there are a lot of words in the Greek for judgment. Uh, some of them have to do with um, judgment on sin. This is not that. This is the word crisis, which means essentially purifying or purging. God is putting you through affliction and persecution in order to purify you so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom for which indeed you are suffering. You're suffering because of the kingdom and it's making you ever more worthy of belonging to that kingdom. Suffering and affliction, says Paul, is a good providence. It is a good providence. It is not, listen carefully, it is not evidence that God has forsaken you. It is evidence that God has not forsaken you. It is for this true worthiness through suffering and affliction that Paul prays for them at the end of the chapter in verse 11. To this end, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to bring glory to God. He wants God to be honored and he knows that that is going to take a measure of persecution and affliction and suffering. And by that, the Lord purges and purifies them and makes them increasingly worthy to be part of his kingdom. Now, all of this is a sweet consolation to the Thessalonians. The reality of their true salvation, the fact that they are the recipients of grace and peace, that they are marked by faith and love and hope and all of them growing and increasing, even in the midst of persecution and suffering, all of this proves that they are kingdom people and they're being prepared for kingdom service in a greater way and one day in an even greater kingdom. All of that is sweet and beautiful music to their ears. But between the beginning and the end of this chapter is horror. It's almost as if somebody put it in the wrong place or somebody later redacted it and injected it into the text because this is such a positive and sweet commendation. But not so. It is the Word of God. It came at the same time, at the same moments through the Apostle Paul, but it is in itself terrifying. From verses 6 to 10, you have something that is as fearful as anything you could find outside the book of Revelation. In fact, probably the most detailed and terrifying description of Christ's return in judgment apart from the book of Revelation. Go down to verse 7. It says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution. Why is he saying this? Why is Paul injecting this here in this wonderful place of commendation and encouragement? He injects it to lighten up their burden and and illuminate their hope. The Lord Jesus is now at the Father's right hand. 
but He has not left them alone. Be encouraged. You're being persecuted. You're being afflicted. By this, the Lord is purging you and purifying you for the day of His coming, which for you will be relief, but for the world will be retribution. So let's focus on that statement in verse 7. As we begin to think about this, we'll do it over the next couple of weeks. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. Paul uses the word apocalypsis for the word reveal. Uh, You're familiar with the word apocalypse or apocalyptic. It simply means an unveiling of something that was hidden. Paul uses this word because the coming of Christ is going to be the unveiling of one who has been hidden. That is the case with our Lord Jesus. The world has not seen Him. We have not seen Him, though we have not seen Him. We love Him because we see Him in the revelation of Holy Scripture. And we see Him with the eye of faith by the power of God. But the world does not see Him. They don't believe in Him necessarily. They mock His coming. But there will be an unveiling. There will be a revelation of of one who has up to this point been kept secret. When Jesus ascended into heaven, as recorded in the first chapter of Acts, He went up into heaven. Since that time, He has been there. He made a few select appearances to the Apostle Paul. But for the rest of human history, He has been in heaven waiting for His return. Century after century has gone by, and He has not been seen. Now, that would have been true uh, the first time He came. There would have been centuries and centuries that passed by. Jews reading in the Old Testament about the arrival of Messiah, and He didn't come, and He didn't come, and generation after generation never saw Him. But finally, He did come, came to Bethlehem, and you know the rest of the story. Well, there's yet another story that will be recorded history. The hidden Jesus will be unveiled. Normally, when the Apostle Paul talks about the return of Christ, he uses the word parousia which means coming, because he's usually talking to believers and he wants them to know that Jesus is coming. He's coming for them in the rapture. He's coming with them to meet the righteous at the end of the tribulation and establish His kingdom. So whenever you see the idea of coming, it's a happy reunion. It's a positive term. It means the one we are waiting for is coming. This is joyful. This is always in association with believers. For us, He is coming. But when He uses the word apocalypse, He's not any longer talking about a welcomed arrival on the part of believers. He's talking about a terrifying unveiling in the face of unbelievers. This is a supernatural invasion from outer space, for sure, by the only one who will ever come from outer space, and that is the Lord Jesus Himself. It emphasizes not some kind of welcoming reception, but a terrifying, terrifying judgment. He is coming back in unveiled divine glory. He is coming back in power. He is coming back, as we read in the book of Revelation, with the sword in order to slaughter and with a rod of iron in order to rule. He is coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. He will subdue the earth and all the nations. He will destroy the wicked. He will gather His own into His marvelous millennial kingdom. 
The first time He came, He was not hidden, but the reality of who He was was hidden. He was in the world, the world was made by Him, but the world knew Him not. They saw Him, but they didn't know Him. The second time He comes, the world will see Him and they will know Him. Matthew 24, 30, they will see the Son of Man coming in glory. Now He is altogether hidden. People conclude that He doesn't even exist, or that He never rose from the dead, or that He's some spirit somewhere in space. But He will come, and when He comes, the entire world will see Him. But the next time, there will be no Bethlehem. There will be no stable, no manger, no animals, no infancy, no carpenter shop, no humble Nazareth village, no poverty, no dusty roads to trudge, no sinners to grieve Him, no religious leaders to fight against Him and oppose Him, no hellish demons will attack Him, no soldiers will pound nails and a crown of thorns into His body. No, not the next time. The next time He comes as King of kings and Lord of lords to conquer and to rule the world. He comes as judge and executioner. This is the apocalypse. This is the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are three prepositional phrases that describe features of His coming. Go back to verse 7. From heaven, with His mighty angels, in flaming fire. Those are details the Lord wants us to know about. From heaven. Acts 1, the angel said, when Jesus ascended into heaven, the same Jesus you've seen go into heaven shall so come in like manner as you've seen Him go. You saw Him go into heaven, you'll see Him come back from heaven. Currently, Hebrews 1.3 says He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's interceding for us as our great high priest. He is ruling over the universe because He's given a name, the name Lord. Every knee bows ultimately to Him. He also is the head of His church. He rules from heaven and He lives spiritually within His church. But His place is in heaven. His seat is in heaven. He is coming, however, from heaven to earth in His second coming. Back in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, it says that believers wait for His Son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. He comes from heaven to rescue His people from final wrath. Chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians verse 16, even in the rapture, it says... We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we always be with the Lord. Before that, in verse 16, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven. The dead in Christ rise first, the rest rise with them. We meet Him in the air, we go back to heaven. So He is in heaven now. Because He is omnipresent, because He is God, He is everywhere at all times, He is uniquely in the life of His church and in the life of every believer. But He will return from heaven. He said on John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back. I'm preparing a place for you in heaven in the Father's house. I'll come back and take you there. He will return from heaven first to gather His church, and then seven years later He'll return with a sword and a rod to set up His millennial kingdom on earth. Secondly, Paul tells us, that He will come from heaven with His mighty angels. Literally, the angels of His power. It's not their power, it's His power mediated through them. 
the angels are the tools, you might say, the created, intelligent, capable, supernatural tools that carry His power to the various tasks and responsibilities to which they are delegated. So we are not surprised to see when the Lord comes that He'll come with His mighty angels. In Old Testament times, there were occasions when God appeared and He appeared with angels. Some of you will remember in Genesis chapter 18 when God appeared to Abraham, He appeared with two angels and they had a meal with Him. Those are theophanies. Those are appearances of the Divine One. This is not the only time God appeared. You find God also appearing in other places in the Old Testament. You find Him appearing with the lying down of the law at Mount Sinai, attended again by angels. In Psalm 68, there's, there's a verse that may sum it up. Psalm 68, I think it's verse 17. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. The word chariots essentially means angels. The angels of God are thousands and thousands and thousands who appeared with Him at Sinai. Even in the little letter of Jude that is next to the book of Revelation, there's a fascinating prophecy recorded there in verse 14. Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. Here's Enoch, seven generations from Adam, long before Christ ever arrived, prophesying the second coming of Christ with His holy angels to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Pretty clear that ungodly is the notable adjective. He's coming back in judgment on the ungodly and He's coming with His angels. Back to a verse I mentioned in the 24th chapter of Matthew where our Lord is giving a sermon on His own second coming. In Matthew 24, we read this in verse 30, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. He comes in glory. He comes with His angels to gather the elect. The next chapter, Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherds separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep are believers. They go into the kingdom. The goats are unbelievers who are sentenced to eternal judgment. The Lord appears in the Old Testament with His angels. Christ appears in His second coming with the same angels because they are the same angels. There were only the angels that were created at the same time. They don't reproduce. 
The same angels that surrounded God in the Old Testament will surround Christ in His return, which is to say that Jesus is God, for He carries the same angels with Him as the ministers of His authority. And then it says in verse 7, the final prepositional phrase, in flaming fire. What does this mean? What do we mean He comes in flaming fire? This is not the kind of fire that you get from lighting something with a match or a torch. This is not a wood fire. This is not a gasoline fire. This is not any kind of temporal, earthly, physical fire. It is the fire of His glory. And you see it all the way back in the third chapter of Exodus where Moses comes to the burning bush and the angel of the Lord appears to him in the blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. What kind of fire is that that is burning but doesn't consume anything? It's the glory fire of the presence of the Lord. Moses on Sinai referred to it, but let's look at chapter 19 of Exodus came about on the third day when it was morning. There were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain, Mount Sinai, a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai. And when the Lord came down, there was an earthquake, and there was thunder, and there was fire. Again, this is not physical fire. This is the fire of God's glory, the blazing Shekinah glory of God manifest. It is a fire, however, that consumes sinners in the spiritual sense. In Psalm 104, just call your attention to verse 4, where God, speaking about angels, says, He makes the winds His messengers, flaming fire His ministers. God comes with angelic hosts and comes in a blaze of fiery glory. The Psalms affirm this. Isaiah talks about the Lord comes and fire comes before Him, devouring His enemies. Even when the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost, it was as fire. In the book of Revelation, when the sky goes dark and the Lord returns, He comes as blazing, fiery glory. You see that early in the book of Revelation. So it is the same burning glory fire that essentially is the essence of the presence of God, the same one that appeared in the Old Testament. It appears again at the coming of Christ, which is to indicate that He is the very blazing glory of God. So Paul is reminding these believers and us that no matter what happens in this life, no matter how hard life is, no matter how much persecution or how much affliction, the Lord will come and make it right. The Lord will come and make it right. Mankind is not in charge of the end of this earth. He cannot stall it off, nor can He speed it up. It is all God's work. Paul brings this reality to the Thessalonians to encourage them 
to persevere and endure in the face of their suffering because the Lord is refining them and the day will come when He comes back and makes everything right. This is history. This is coming sooner than ever before. Now, as we look at this passage, um, we'll just make a few more comments today, but as we look at it in the next couple of weeks, there are two things I want you to see here, two features that come through. The whole text collects around two realities, retribution and relief, retribution and relief. Everybody is going to be in one of those two categories, retribution or relief. To put it in the words of Jesus in Matthew 25:46, these will go away into eternal punishment, the righteous into eternal life. You either go into eternal punishment or eternal life. It's either relief or retribution. He starts with the issue of retribution right in verse 8. So let's just pick that up, say a few things about it. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution. This is um, a measure of encouragement to the saints. This is a measure of encouragement to the saints. It's sad on the one hand, but it's right on the other hand. It's right. Dealing out retribution because it's right. And you're going to see that next week. If you look at verse 6, you get a hint. After all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. That's a frightening warning to the persecutors of Christians. The Lord will come dealing out retribution, that is to say, giving full vengeance, bringing full punishment. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 66, 15, the Lord is the avenger. He puts on garments of vengeance, Isaiah 59 says. Ezekiel 25 says, I will lay my vengeance according to my wrath and anger. Deuteronomy 32, 35 is a familiar one. To me belongs vengeance and retribution. Paul picks that up in Romans 12, 19. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, we don't like to hear about the fact that God is a God of vengeance, but it is necessary. That's what holiness requires. This vengeance is not like some unruly, hostile, selfish, sinful passion that makes people do what they do out of sheer hatred. In fact, we're not to do that. Matthew 5 says we're to love our enemies. We're to do good to those who persecute us. And when we do that, when we love our enemies, we're like God. We know God loves His enemies. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He loved us when we were enemies. But for those who will not receive His love and His Son and His salvation, sin must be punished. And so Paul says in Romans 3, 5, and it's an important statement, the God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous. The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous. There will be retribution. What is it? Verse 9, these will pay the penalty 
of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. That's the vengeance. It will happen. It is right. It is deserved. It will come. You might say that it is of His own nature that God is love. God is love because He is love. He is the purest love in the universe. He is the greatest love in the universe. He loves the unlovely. He loves those who hate Him. But God is also holy. Love is all in God. Vengeance is something prompted by what is outside of God, namely sin. It is utterly foreign to His nature, and it must be dealt with. Do not be mistaken. God will avenge. Listen to some of the things it says in the Psalms. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. God will shatter the heads of his enemies. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from thee. Return sevenfold into the breast of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. Happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Do not I hate them that hate you, O Lord, and do not I loathe them that rise up against you. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Just some of the strong language of the Psalms in which even the psalmist calls on God to avenge the offenses against him and his people. English writer John Wenham wrote a book called The Goodness of God. In one statement in the book, he says this, earlier this year, 14 church study groups looked at the Old Testament Psalms and concluded that 84 of them were not fit for Christians to sing. And J.C. Wanzee, compiler of the useful collection of New Testament passages which has been printed for congregational chanting under the title, A New Testament Psalter, said this, These psalms and parts of many others are full of tribal jealousies, bloodthirsty threats and curses, whinings and moanings, which are shocking in themselves and time-wasting to God and man, end quote. I understand that if you don't know God and you don't believe in Him, those are terrifying realities that you'd like to get rid of. The problem is, the harsh passages and the tender passages are so hopelessly mixed up that you can't extract one from the other. Even the godly in the Old Testament sought the vengeance of God. The martyrs in the book of Revelation, how long, O Lord, how long are you going to let this go on before you avenge? When God reveals to Jeremiah that some are plotting his death, Jeremiah prays because he's been a faithful prophet, and here's his prayer. O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tries the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. And God replies to his prayer. Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and none of them shall be left. And that came to pass. Later on, we find an even more terrible prayer. Give heed to me, O Lord, from Jeremiah, and hearken to my plea. Is evil a recompense for good? Yet they have dug a pit for my life. Remember how I stood before you to speak good for them and to turn away your wrath from them? 
Therefore, deliver up their children to famine. Give them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed. May their men meet death by pestilence and their youth be slain by the sword in battle. Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Those are called imprecatory psalms. They're literally praying down punishment on the heads of the enemies of God. They're not the enemies of Jeremiah. They're the enemies of God. God answers that prayer with a promise of horrifying judgments. Listen to what God said. Behold, I am bringing such evil on this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle because they have filled this place with the blood of innocents, sacrificing babies, and have built the high places to Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal. Therefore, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. I'll make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its disasters, and I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters. From Jeremiah 18 and 19. And that happened in the devastation of the Babylonian assault. There's vengeance in the New Testament as well. You don't know the Jesus of the New Testament unless you understand that. We like to think of Jesus as this mild-mannered, loving person who didn't want to say anything unkind to anyone. But he talked about eternal fire. He said, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire. He talked about weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. He talked about a fire that never goes out. He pronounced a curse on Chorazin, a curse of damnation on Bethsaida. He pronounced a curse on the Pharisees. He pronounced a curse on the scribes. He pronounced a curse on Judas. He even pronounced curses on people who tempt Christians. Woe to him by whom they are tempted. Better for a millstone to be put around their neck and they be drowned. Jesus Himself said in Matthew 13 a couple of times that the unfaithful, unbelieving people will be thrown into a furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. No text outside the detailed passages of Revelation is as potent as this one in portraying the fierce vengeance of the Lord Jesus in His coming. It's a severe warning for us as we enjoy the consolation and the sweet comfort and the good providence that God works in our life, we can't forget what's in store for the rest, right? You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. I need
According to their kinds, this is Ken Ham, author of the new book on effective evangelism called Gospel Reset. In Genesis chapter 1, we read that God created everything to reproduce according to its kind. Now this tells us something about biology. One kind of living thing can't turn into another. But according to evolutionary ideas, a single-celled organism turned into all the kinds we have today, including bananas, bumblebees, bears. So which model does biology confirm? Well, we observe that organisms produce more organisms like themselves. There can be a great deal of variety within the kind. Bears still produce bears and cats cats, finches finches. In other words, they reproduce according to their kinds, just as we'd expect based on the Bible. Subscribe to receive daily insights from Ken Ham delivered to your inbox when you go to AnswersRadio.com and listen to this faith-building program again at AnswersRadio.com.
Finches, evidence for evolution? This is Ken Ham, inviting you to have an encounter with God's Word at the Ark Encounter. Textbooks often use examples of speciation as supposed evidence for evolution. A popular example is Darwin's finches on the Galapagos Islands. Now these finches have various sized beaks, allowing them to eat different seeds. But is this really evolution in action? No. The finches remain finches. What we're really seeing is speciation. The finches become more adapted to their environment. Now, evolution requires the addition of brand new genetic information to turn one kind into another. But speciation, it usually results in a loss of information, the exact opposite of evolution. So don't let the textbooks fool you. Finches have always been finches. Listen to this program again or view a complete transcript at Answers Radio and plan your visit to the life-size Noah's Ark attraction in northern Kentucky at AnswersRadio.com. Glory of your name 
And what am I that you called me to your side And took this heart of stone and broke it open wide editor of the popular apologetic series of books, The New Answers Books. Noah took two of every kind, seven pairs of some, of land-dwelling, air-breathing animals on the ark. Now, researchers put kind at the same level as family in our modern system of classification. This means Noah didn't need two lions, two tigers, and two cats on the ark. He only needed two of the cat kind. So how did we get all the species we have today? Well, God created each kind with incredible genetic variety, allowing them to adapt. It's a wise design. It allows creatures to thrive in an ever-changing world like the one after the flood. As the animals spread out from the ark, they adapted, forming different species. That's not evolution. Discover more about the flood, the ark, and so much more at the Ark Encounter in Northern Kentucky. Plan your visit to see the full-size Noah's Ark and its zoo at AnswersRadio.com. Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. God, the truth, so we about to screw you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest group. Of Christ put us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crafting our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose, partly to snatch hats from the furnace. Through Jesus' extravagant service, immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent, and we only scratching the surface. He's the seed that was conceived in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior, the greater angel. Came a man, came as a lamb, and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts easily. Posted on bended knees Controls the cosmos With the most authority So we both in the most exalted King Christ supreme He's the sovereign thriller The awesome healer The law fulfiller The solemn killer The fraud revealer No God is realer, yeah When you're taking your time In the scripture Put the gate into prominent picture See his light shining bright In the night And his fright In the might And the diamond mixture See his name at all The renown though When he came for the loss That he found though He was tamed in floss All around but remained For the manger The cross to the crown Yo Satan had a shirt Hold on him Fight for the rope But doping in All to the eyes To the S To the E to the N That's what we hoping in Risen on his spell check, the risen king can rinse clean the most rebellious. I was hellbound, now I'm spellbound. Word is born, I'm a bond servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout, I was bought with a price. We gotta hope they won't fail us when we return to the dust. We 
will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's sinking. We are clinging to the promises that God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly proportionate. Everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one. Intrinsic, infinite son. Preeminent the name par excellence. Prenom phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon. You see the fiber of cosmology. The Abba of astronomy. He's potter. We are pottery. It's shocking Jesus died for me. The father he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees. You gotta see his odyssey. From sovereignty and lottery. To poverty and robbery. To resurrected bodily. Apocalyptic prophecy. He's stopping all the mockery. And scholarly snobbery. That don't acknowledge him properly. You ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent. It's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment. Study the development from Old to New Testament. You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age. It's relevant. Crisis on its center stage. Forget religious sentiments that center on man. But something less is what you're settling. He is the most excellent. Exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance. Yeah. The sin of sinners that separated and segregated. That severed the relations between man and his maker. And placed Christ on his costly cross. And compensated his life, death, and resurrection. Emancipated and gave us freedom from it all. Freedom from the effects of the fall. Freedom from Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden and from the law. So the saints stand and applaud his grace and glorious cause. With hands raised, praising his name, singing glory to God. Fiercely and wonderfully made. This is Ken Ham, head of the Apologetics Evangelistic Ministry of Answers in Genesis. Now the human body is a marvel of design. We're truly fearfully and wonderfully made. So how do those with genetic disorders and disabilities fit into this? Well, first we must remember that creation is cursed. God's original creation was very good. There was no death, suffering, disorders or disabilities, but sin changed everything. And now creation and our own bodies groan from sin and the curse. We also know God creates us and is sovereign over everything, even conception. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, even though everybody is marred by the curse in one way or another. A biblical worldview affirms what's wrong with this world. Plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark at Ark Encounter by going to AnswersRadio.com and discover more about science and the Bible on our website, AnswersRadio.com. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, 
long ago as that was You're still the same, you have not changed What can that mean? But my God is immutable Immutable, you are beautiful You never change, you remain the same Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change Forever you reign, you remain the The other day, how you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do, but simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence, you are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance, you said Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man, according to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan, I changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us, all that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust, shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the All of my idiosyncrasies Still you pursue relentlessly At times I wonder how this can be Surely it's because of the cross Where Jesus paid the full penalty And bore the burden of sin's great cost I'm saved by grace and faith in God I look to Christ and I trust He died So even though I'm being sanctified I can't be any more justified His work is finished that cannot change And with this knowledge I am free Forever this grace it will remain Because of what happened on Calvary As long ago as that was As long ago as that was have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the same. Immutable, beautiful. You never change, never change Forever you reign, you remain the same You will never change, you will never change Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change Speak Life This is Ken Ham, author and speaker on Genesis and all of the Bible's reliability. We live in a culture that doesn't value human life. 
Here in America, nearly 70% of unborn babies diagnosed with Down syndrome are killed by abortion. In France, it's nearly 80%. In Denmark, it's 98%. And in Iceland, it's 100%. And that's just one disability. Why doesn't our culture value life? Well, in an evolutionary worldview, we're just animals. You get rid of spare cats, so why not spare kids? What's the difference? In a biblical worldview, every person, regardless of their level of ability, is made in God's image. We have unique values simply because of that. As Christians, we need to speak life to a culture that promotes death. You'll discover more answers to your questions about the Bible's accuracy and authority at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be built up in your faith at AnswersRadio.com.
Tributory. There are a lot of false teachings in the world. Paganism, Gnosticism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, Taoism, Confucianism, Shamanism, even Judaism, Polytheism, Pantheism, Deism, Darwinism, Naturalism, Secular Humanism, Feminism, Agnosticism, Atheism, and Islamism. All these different ways to get to God or be a God or deny God. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by me. Of course, not everything that claims to be of Christ is truly of Christ, like Catholicism, Mormonism, Unitarian Universalism, Oneness Pentecostalism, Heaven Tourism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Eastern Orthodoxy, Word of Faith, the New Apostolic Reformation, and Rob Bell. So why all these false religions and teachers? Why would God allow there to be so many, many lies? Two reasons, testing and judgment. The Bible says of those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in their sin. In Deuteronomy 13, we are told, if a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and says, let us go after other gods, you shall not listen to that false prophet. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. When it comes down to it, there are only two religions. You either worship the created or the creator when we understand the text. You can find when we understand text, also known as what, WWTT, on YouTube, and also on WWTT.com, WWTT.com. And here's another one from them. This is called The Bible Whispers About Sexual Sin here on Tributoria. We ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about. And we ought to shout about what it shouts about. And the Bible appears more to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. It's religious pride to preach the Bible whispers about sexual sin. God said loud and clear, flee from sexual immorality or any kind of sex outside the marriage bed since God created sex for a husband and a wife. Often when the Bible lists the sins God will judge, sexual sins are first on the list. Now someone might say, wait, I listened to Pastor Greer's sermon, and in context he was saying the Bible whispers about homosexual sin. Okay, was God whispering when he destroyed the sodomites? Jude 7 says they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, and now serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Greer's sermon was on Romans 1, 24-32. Over half that section describes homosexual passions as the perverse behavior of a people given over to a debased mind. How does anyone preach the Bible whispers about this? Many churches are embroiled in sexual scandal, and this is in front of the whole world. It does not help when church leaders say things like the Bible whispers about sexual sin. Bad doctrine causes these problems, and bad doctrine makes them worse. Do not whisper any word of God. Preach Christ and Him crucified for our sins. When we understand the text, what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world? The answer is grace. By grace you are saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
If you ask a Muslim, where will you go when you die? He might say, paradise. I read the Quran. I pay alms. I pray five times a day. I've made the pilgrimage. I am a righteous man. If you ask a Jew, he might say, we really do not know where we will go when we die, but if there is a life after this one and a reward for what we do, then surely it will be dependent upon the kind of life we have lived. A Buddhist might say he hopes to achieve nirvana by following the Eightfold Path or being a good person. A Hindu strives to break the cycle of reincarnation and attain moksha by being a good person. Even an atheist thinks he can be a good person. But ask a Christian, where will you go when you die? He will say heaven. How does he know? He will say, I was born in sin. The intention of my heart has been evil from my youth. I have rebelled against a holy God, and for this I deserve death. Wait, all these other guys say they'll be rewarded for their good. How can the Christian say he will get to heaven when he says he is not good? Because he knows no one gets to heaven on their own merit, but on the merit of Jesus Christ, the righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus to be received by faith when we understand the text. Like I mentioned before, that is when we understand the text, and you can find them on www.tt.com and also on YouTube at www.tt. And thanks for listening to Miss Controller here on Truth Be Told Radio. What I got for you now is a song called Before the Throne God by Bill Fish.
are discussing Ben Shapiro, but more than discussing Ben Shapiro, the Orthodox Jew, very popular, really sharp fellow, we're talking about our Bible, that the Old Testament and the New Testament really do flow together. It's a seamless tapestry. It's not this crabby God in the Old Testament and then really nice Jesus in the New Testament. No, it's about one story. It is about Jesus Christ specifically purchasing sinners that we might be redeemed so we can spend eternity with him. And that eternity, despite what Ben Shapiro is about to tell you, is spoken of in the Old Testament. If there is a God, which I believe, uh, who exists outside of time and space, and that what animates me is that I'm made in the image of God, and that what animates my capacity is that I'm made in the image of God, that I reunify with God. That basically, there is a, the, the traditional Jewish take on this has been that there's a cleansing process. Judaism doesn't believe in eternal hell. So it's instead this idea that there's a cleansing process for your, for your soul, the part that you got from God, that spark of life that you got from God. You schmutz it, it up while you're alive, and now there's a cleansing process, and, then, and that's what hell is, sort of. Uh, and then you are reunited with God, and you have greater understanding. Uh, the idea of me being a distinct personage outside of my body, I think, is, is a difficult one. So Ben Shapiro revealing an awful lot there, suggesting that we can purify ourselves because the Bible really doesn't talk about any other sort of purification system. Yeah, it's very strange. It is, it is strange. Just one Bible verse, if you don't mind. This is Numbers 17:11. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. There's his system for cleansing. Why does he reject that and try to clean himself up? Well, partly because uh, that's a necessity in modern Judaism, because the temple doesn't exist anymore, so they can't have the daily sacrifices. Right. So the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament is non-operative. So they, they've, they've, for 2,000 years, uh, you know, Jewish theologians, rabbis have have had to find alternative. Right, a new explanation for how atonement is done. And, of course, it's works-based because uh, it, it, it comes out of the same sort of Sadducee and Pharisee traditions. Uh, and what, what Ben Shapiro believes is a mingling, well, mingling of the Sadducee's tradition and the Pharisee's tradition over 2,000 years developed with rabbinical tradition. And what he actually holds to is a tradition. He would say this, I think, that uh, it, it, the Jewish tradition for him is more authoritative than his own reading. Sure, the, the teaching of the rabbis, I'm sure he quotes Maimonides freely and regularly. So Ben has missed the point of the law. The Old Testament laws, and there are many of them contained in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, what did Paul say was the purpose of the law? To make sin exceedingly sinful and to demonstrate that we're all guilty under sin, you know, that every mouth may be stopped. cleanse ourselves. It's a schoolmaster to bring us right, Christ. Bring us Christ. Christ. It's not on sin, but by the law. It silences the mouth, brings the whole world guilty before God. Right. So it's not uncommon for people to admit Jewish people have been striving to keep those laws for the sake of self-purification for centuries. Let's keep going with Ben and his view of the resurrection. The idea of tichiat metim, which is the idea of resurrection of the dead, uh, that's a different idea than what happens after you die, right? Tichiat right. metim is the idea that eventually the Messiah comes, that we'll all be resurrected back in our physical bodies at a certain point, which 
you know, honestly, given the nature of how science is moving and, and the possibilities of cloning, is it actually less crazy than it, than it sounded probably a couple of thousand years ago. All right, the cloning thing aside, let's talk about the resurrection. I think Ben is denying that the Old Testament has anything to do with the resurrection. Yeah, which is pretty amazing, actually, because I think the oldest book in the New Testament would be the book of Job, probably written before the Pentateuch. And it certainly describes an era that precedes Moses, uh, because you can tell from the lifespan of Job and the... Uh, the the fact that he was you know Chaldean and and probably lived in the time of Abraham or before, and Job gives perhaps the clearest testimony about you know bodily resurrection than any other Old Testament character. He says, "I know my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, he says, even if worms destroy my body, yet in my flesh I shall see God." It's a it's a fascinating and emphatic. Uh, of affirmation of bodily resurrection. And it's a great Easter hymn. Yeah, it is. I've <laughs> preached on it on Easter. <laughs> well, it, okay, so clearly in Job, but there are other places we find the resurrection in the Old Testament. Psalm 71:20. You have made me see many troubles and calamities. You will revive me again from the depths of the earth. That's interesting now, isn't it? From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. That seems pretty clear. Job 19, this is the one you cited. Right. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. How my heart yearns within me. And finally, Isaiah 26. But your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew in the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Now, there are more verses, but clearly the afterlife and the resurrection of the body clear in the Old Testament. Right. One of the great passages in the Old Testament is the Valley of Dry Bones, which is a picture of that very thing, bodily resurrection. So you, you can't say that this is a concept that's foreign to the Jewish scriptures. It, it, it is a concept, I think, that's sort of been minimized in Jewish tradition, and that's why Ben Shapiro thinks. Yeah, and and we, we do have to admit, we get much clearer detail in the New Testament, but that's because yeah, no again, the Bible is a progressive revelation revealing more and more details as we go, but it is not silent on the afterlife and the resurrection. Yeah. That is from Riches. You can find them on YouTube as W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D, Riches, and also on their website, Wretched.org, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D dot O-R-G, Wretched.org. And I'm going to gonna play a song for you. This is Go Fish with Battle with Bop here on Truth Be Told Radio. Sing and do the bop, do the bop, come on, oh yeah, do the bop, 
Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the son of man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the son of man? Trust. Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing. And forever say worthy is the land. What's up? Surprise, no surprise, I'm back in your section. With Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. More power than gravity, his knowledge and strategies confound the academy. Bow to his majesty, he paid sin salary, took up blame on Calvary. Those who love his name, spread his fame is the policy. All eyes on the mattress, price of his sacrifice. Let's prize our master Christ and rise in the afterlife. What, did we?
we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a ride or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes who hate truth. The gospel is not fake news. I got to sin, the gospel sweeter than it's ever been. Ain't nothing changed, let us sin, we got the medicine. It's still human emergency, the serpent attack. You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up? Stop and listen to my composition. Lots of rhythm, but not traditional, kind of different. But God's consistent, no contradiction, my proposition. Through crucifixion, he mocked and crippled his opposition. It's not some fiction, I'm spitting, the Son of God is risen. And my incentive for godly living is I'm forgiven. Jesus came to unlock the prison. And through the Spirit, he brings a new birth like an obstetrician. At times I listen, a lot of Christian hip-hop is missing. The proper vision is my suspicion, we drop the mission. Not to this, but the Word of God is it not sufficient. The doctrine is that the gospel fixes. Is our shock condition. God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness a God's commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like elevator music, but we gon' celebrate him, relegate him, we refuse it. They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself. They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real estate. Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the Father wasn't gracious, no sin in him. Again. He came straight blameless, no sin in him. Again. Nothing's been the same since, no sin in him. Again. Fakers lack his fragrance, no sin in him. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus. When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is gonna spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up? Find out more about Shailen, that Shailen was um, stand up. Uh, find him at lampmode.com, L A M P M O D E dot C O, lampmode.com, which is record label. And here we got Goldfish with the old Red Cross here on Troopy Tolerate.
Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.